All right, so we are continuing our series through the story of David, and this week we are going to be in Second Samuel in chapter 7. Now, we have gone quite a ways through David's life, and David, through this story, he's been through a lot. It started off, he was, he was chosen as out of the, all of his brothers, the youngest one that wasn't even included in the discussion, he was chosen to be anointed the next king of Israel, and then he goes and he defeats the giants Goliath who had defied the Lord himself and he's cheered by all of israel the the crowds cheer his name the king makes him his son-in-law and things are going well but oh then the bottom just drops out beneath him and all of a sudden he's on the run and he's being persecuted and chastened his very life is in danger from his father-in-law nonetheless who's jealous of him But the Lord is faithful, and, and he stays faithful himself to the Lord, not giving up, not uh, turning against the Lord's anointed one or against the Lord himself. And soon, yeah, I don't know how soon, it was actually quite a while of enduring that, but he becomes king himself. But what he had been promised at the very beginning, after all of this, after all of he's gone through, he has now become king, and he is seated on the throne and he, in this last Sunday, we talked about how he brought the ark of the Lord. That is the place that the Lord uh, uh, promised to be his place of residence, his footstool, his seat. And he brought the ark of the Lord into the capital of Israel. And it was a glorious occasion. There was much fanfare and much celebration and much worship and much sacrifice and offerings and everything like that. And things seem to be going well now. But, man... You can't help but think in the back of your head, things were going pretty well for Saul beforehand too. Until, you know, until it wasn't. And then God rejected Saul and he took the kingdom away from Saul and he gave it to David. And so now David's here and he's gone through all of this, yes, and he's now in a good position, yes, but ah, that nagging thought in the back of the head, what if... What if this is just temporary? What if this isn't the happily ever after? What if things will go bad again? And what if? What if God won't stay on his side? And if you're familiar with the role that David plays in the Bible, it's pretty easy to dismiss this question because uh, we know kind of the future and his and what goes on after this point in the story. But I mean, David doesn't know. <laughs> Even while he was king, he was constantly the target of people trying to usurp the throne, trying to kick him out of his position as king of Israel. And so what does he need to do to stay king? What does he need to do for God not to reject him as God rejected Saul? Does that question resound with you a little bit? Because I wrestle with it myself often, and I've had many conversations um, with other people where we consider, how do we really know that we're going to go to heaven? How do we really know that, that this eternal life that we've been promised is uh, going to happen? That when we get up into whatever scene you picture of yourself when you go up uh, at, the, at the end of times, um, whether it's at the gates in St. Peter or laying before the, the book of life with God there, how do we know that God is going to say, yes, yes, indeed, I have not rejected you. Yes, indeed, these promises that you believed in have come to fruition. There's always that nagging thought, that nagging worry of what if, 
what if? And I know it's not just me. It's not just me that's ever struggled with it because I've had all these conversations with many other people. And in essence, this question boils down to the same question that David had is, how can we make sure that God will not reject us? Is there anything we can do? Is constantly analyzing? Is there anything that I need to do? Anything more that I need to do for David? Any more that he needs to do to make sure that God won't reject us? That we will, in fact, continue in His favor. And we see this play out in the first part of Second Samuel in verse in chapter seven, uh, the first two verses. We read this. Now, when the king lived in his house, he'd just built this beautiful house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Oh boy. Oh wow. Oh no. What have I done? I've, I've built this big, beautiful ark and yet I've neglected God's housing. Oh, that, that seems like that could go badly very quickly. Doesn't seem like a situation that's going to turn out well. I should, I should probably do something about that. And Nathan says to the king, go and do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. So, okay, got the confirmation that I do indeed need to do something. But then God responds. And he says this starting verse four, he says, but at that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He said, go and tell my servant, David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. I did. I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says, have I ever needed you to build me a house? Have I ever told you that I needed you to build me a house? Well, clearly the answer is no. But then he goes on to say this. He, he, he shows David how this relationship works. Starting in verse 8, going through verse 16. God says this to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, the, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, which we've seen has come true. Many people have heard of David. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and shall be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Whoa. That is pretty singular of a statement in any of the religions that have ever, ever graced the earth. 
for God to call himself a father to a human and relate to him as his son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. Notice the words and phrases that God repeats throughout here. He says, I took you. I have been with you. I will make for you. I will appoint a place. I will plant a place. I will give you. I will raise you up. I will establish. I will tend to him. I will discipline forever, forever, forever. God is making a covenant with David right here. And the closest thing that we have that's anything like this are our marriage vows. But unlike in marriage vows where both parties are making promises, God is the one saying that He is doing everything. He has been doing everything. He will be doing everything in this relationship. David starts out this thinking, oh man, what do I need to do? Right? I need to build him a house. I need to make sure that he's in at least as comfortable as a place as I am, lest I I fall out of favor. And God turns us around and he says, no, no, no. I am going to build you a house. I will do the actions. But lest we think that this only has to do with David, look with me in verses 13 and 14. The Lord says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now he's clearly talking about David's son here in this specific immediate context. But that word forever, that word forever shows that in this, his making of this covenant and making these promises, it's far bigger than just David's offspring. Because when we say forever... That it might just mean 15 minutes, right? Oh man, that wait and the drive through took forever. <laughs> but God doesn't exaggerate like we do. When God says forever, right, He has forever eternity in mind. And He fulfilled this promise through Jesus, a descendant of David, but also not just a descendant of David, not just fully human, but also fully God who is the king of all creation from eternity to to eternity. So even though this covenant was made with David over 3,000 years ago, through belief in Jesus, we receive the benefits of all of God's actions and promises in this chapter. And this chapter is the pinnacle of all of David's kingship of, of, of the monarchical period of Israel. This is the height of it. God making this covenant that I will establish the throne Forever. How can we make sure that God won't reject us? What can we do? Well, first and foremost, we need to recognize that our relationship with God exists not because we have done anything, but because He did and He does everything. God chose us. 
before we did anything for Him. Hmm. Are you willing to accept that? Now let's take a second. Let's dive down deep for a bit. It's easy. That's a language that we use so often in church. God chose us before we did anything. We didn't do anything. God did it all. We can say this as many times in as many ways as we want. And sometimes all of it serves to do is for us to be able to gloss over it a little bit more quickly. But let's think about this for a second. God chose us before we did anything. That means that we did not and we will not come to God because we are smarter or more spiritual or more logical or more compassionate or more discerning or insert whatever thing you might be prideful about in here than anyone else. It's so easy to kind of maybe not out loud say, but at least think to ourselves that, oh, well, I have faith in God. I believe in God. I, I, I believe this because there's something about me that, that made it happen or something about me that made it just the perfect conditions for, for faith to be received or whatnot. No, 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 no. What God is saying, what he's showing David here is, is that we haven't done anything to deserve this, nor have we done anything to make it easier for this to happen. No, God does and did everything. But even further than that, it's, it is impossible for us to choose to come to God. And let's run that back. It's impossible for us to initiate a relationship with God. We're the ones that rejected Him. Which, from a counseling standpoint, that makes so much sense why we would fear that He will reject us because we did that to Him. So often the greatest, the, the, the thing, the weakness that we point out the most in others is our greatest weakness. And it is very much the same way in our relationship with God. We're the ones that rejected Him. It would only be natural for Him to somehow reject us because we didn't do something. But that's not how God works. God isn't a human. God... Ah, thankfully, God isn't prideful like us. As we see here in God's relationship with David, and, and as we see it fulfilled to the greatest extent in Jesus' actions on the cross 2,000 years ago, God chose to pay the debt that we owed him to right the wrongs that we did so that that we could be in relationship with Him. We can't initiate it. We can't choose to say, okay, I want to be in relationship with God. No, God had to do it first. So what now? Are we good to go? God's never going to reject us. Is that the affirmation? So He chose us once. He's never going to... Never going to reject us. He'll never turn away from us. Well, let's keep going in this story, right? Let's see. After God makes this beautiful covenant with, with David, what does David do? Well, starting in verse 18, this is what David responds with. Then David went in and he sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that, that you have brought me this far? 
And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. Understatement of the, of the millennia. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. For what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. They didn't choose you. You chose them. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your David, your servant, and concerning his house and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God of Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, has made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you, and now, O Lord, you are God. And your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. In response to God's covenant promises, David is overwhelmed. He is in awe. Because as he says in verse 20, You know me, Lord. You know your servant. I I don't deserve this. I sinned just as much, if not more, than anyone else. But he praises God. He worships God. He expresses his thankfulness that God would do such a beautiful and amazing thing for him. One of the few times amazing is used in his proper context. And he pledges himself to God in turn. He says, there are no other gods. I forsake any other religion, any other God except for you. I will worship you and you only because of what you have done, because you have chosen me, and because of this promise that you have made. Can you imagine if he didn't do that? Can you imagine if David receives this promise from this promise from the prophet Nathan and he says, Okay. Whatever, man. <laughs> well, I'm gonna go worship this statue over here because uh I kinda like the way they do that ritual. It's kinda fun. So um makes me feel good. I'm gonna do that one. But uh thanks God, I'll I'll, I'll keep those promises in mind. Right? I mean, we don't have to even imagine that because that's exactly what David's descendants did. That's what, when he had sons throughout the kings, not related to the kings of Judah, not even of Israel, they rejected God. They did exactly that. They said, oh, I like these rituals better. These are better. Thanks for the promise. I'll, I'll appreciate the thronehood forever for me and all of my descendants. But, you know, these calves, these, uh, poles, these, uh, 
I mean, we could go on and on about the things they worshipped, but um, they went and worshipped them. And so what did God do? Right? David's line, the, the, the kings of, of Judah, his descendants, they rejected God, so God disciplined them as he promised he would by taking away their kingdom to bring them back to faithfulness. Wait a second, wait. He promised them the kingdom would last forever. They would be on the throne forever. So how, how is he taking this away? Doesn't it make God a liar? Well, no, it doesn't. Because <laughs> through Jesus, he still kept his promise. Jesus was still on the throne. And Jesus is the descendant of David. So David's descendant is still on the throne forever. And it's not a mere technicality. That's far greater than the promise that they understood. A few years ago, I was um, hanging out with some of my friends in, in, in <laughs> up in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, we were, we were, I was sitting on a couch and um, I needed to get up to go get... I think another bottle of water or something like that. And I got up real fast and went over. And as I got up, my friend's tablet was sitting on the edge of that couch. And I hit it and I knocked it off and broke it pretty badly. Oh, man, I was devastated and also really scared because I was a poor graduate school student at the time. I did not have the money to pay for replacing that tablet what does my friend do? He says, it's okay, Mylon. I'll take care of it. You don't need to pay for it. He had no need to do that. No need to show me such grace in that moment. I was fully responsible. I was the one who knocked it off. I was the one who was careless. I broke that tablet. Yet he took it upon himself to take the penalty, to take the debt that was owed And bear it himself and not to make me come up with payment. Now, what if I had turned to that friend and said, not been grateful at all, said, yeah, of course you would. You're supposed to do that. You have to do that. That's what you do. No, that's not how that works. We wouldn't be friends today. There's no way that he would rightfully be very angry at me, rightfully hold that against me until such a time as I went and I repented and I apologized to him. And such it is with God. God chose, right? God chose to come to us, to choose us, to relieve us of that debt, of that payment that we owed Him. Now, if we turn to Him and we still reject Him, He'll do the same to us. He has no obligation To us at that point. So if God chose us, if God has chosen us before we did anything, does that mean that, that God will never reject us? No, it doesn't. It means that we must be faithful in response to him. In response to him mending that relationship. In response to him coming down to us. Though we didn't deserve it. Though we had no chance and no possible way to go to Him, He came down to us. That doesn't mean that our lives can continue as they were before. No, that means that we must be thankful. We must be faithful in response to that and live our lives in light of what He's done. Now this is, 
This is some interesting language, right? Because so often in the church we talk about unconditional love. It's this buzzword that we've been using now for a few decades, and it's not in the Bible. In fact, unconditional love, this uh, this thought that whatever we do, God will still love us no matter what we do, started around 1934 from a human psychologist, Eric Fromm, and then was later uh, uh, used and and grown a bit by by Carl Rogers and it was popularized through a few very successful books and and before long then the church took it up as a a way to uh, relate to culture um, and describe God in a way that was popular at the time but this is not the way the Bible describes love nor were either of those men Christians themselves in Romans 3 verses 23 through 26 as we read for our words of assurance Paul ends that by saying, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we are justified by His grace as a gift. And it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He who might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus... That is the key component here. God's love, right? God's love uh, throughout the Bible, unconditional is never used, but it does use these words. It uses the Hebrew word chesed, and he uses the Greek word agape. And we translate those words, and especially the chesed, it translated as steadfast and committed. And a love that will bear many wrongs. But it is not unconditional. It is unconditioned in the saying that there are no preconditions for God loving us. God did not require us to do anything for him to go and to die on the cross, for him to bring us back into the ability to have a relationship with him. But he does require of us one small, simple thing to believe that he did it. R.C. Sproul uh, says this. He says, The common contemporary view of this is that we are estranged from God, but He is not estranged from us. The enmity is all one-sided. The picture we get is that God goes on loving us with unconditional love while we remain hateful towards Him. And in Christ, the obstacle of estrangement is overcome. Right? That was unconditioned love. God did not require us to do anything to show us that ultimate form of love. And we are reconciled to God because of it. But that reconciliation only extends to believers. Those who reject Christ remain at enmity with God, estranged from God, and objects of both His wrath and His abhorrence. And that sounds incredibly harsh by today's standards. Indeed, it's probably one of the biggest obstacles that we are struggling with uh, in our faith communities right now. That idea of God having wrath towards anyone. But I think the parable of the prodigal son, perhaps one of the most beautiful parables in the Bible, illustrates it so beautifully. It tells the story of a son brought up in the family, who rejects his father. He takes his inheritance from the family. He squanders it all. He leaves. And then he realizes just how foolish he has been. 
And he returns back to his family saying, and repenting of his sin, willing to simply be a servant in order to survive. But as he returns, as he gets close, as he gets near his family, his father is there and he sprints out to him. He sprints out to the son who had rejected him. And he welcomes him back into the family and he throws a celebration. He's not near it, simply a servant. Even after all that he has done, after all of the times that he's rejected, he has said, I wish my father was dead. And he took all of his money while the father was still living, left, totally cut himself off from the family, squanders it all, and then comes crawling back. The father does not treat him as some object of contempt. He does not treat him as he deserves to be treated. No, he welcomes him in and he throws a celebration and he puts a ring on his finger and a robe around his shoulders and he is rejoicing because he says, for my son was dead and now he is alive again. And such is our relationship with God. We were dead. But when we recognized what God has done for us, when we repent of our sin, when we believe, when we believe that He has paid our debts, He rejoices, He welcomes us back, He puts that robe around our shoulders. In fact, as it says here in that verse 14 there, He adopts us into His family. We are not even worthy to be His servants, yet He calls us sons and daughters. And the question there is, was the son ever not in the family? Well, I think that's a good question. But at one point, the son was dead. And now he's alive. What we see through this covenant that God made with David, that he fulfilled with Jesus, is that God has adopted us into his family. He has said, I will be your father. And through Jesus, you will be my children. And sometimes that can have some really negative connotations for us. Fathers and parents in general, especially here on earth, are not perfect. And perhaps many of you have experienced abandonment or abuse or something other deeply tragic at the hands of your father. And so when you hear God describing him as a father, that's the picture that you get in your head. But I invite you to explore a God who chooses you before you do anything to please him. Who died for you. whose love for you is steadfast, who will never wrong you, and who sprints out to you the moment he sees you, crying tears of joy, welcoming you and putting a robe around your shoulders. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet through Christ Jesus, we have been made righteous. He has justified us. 
David goes on to say at the end of this psalm, in Psalm 96, in which he's glorifying God, he says, Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees and the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. my hope for you, my desire for you, my greatest, deepest want is that each and every one of you would come to know the love of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ, that you would know what it means to be loved. I can't describe it fully, but I invite you to believe that what he's done simply in believing that he came to earth. He died on that cross for our sins and through his resurrection, he has given you the promise of eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, oh, like David, we are overwhelmed by you the promises that you make, the consequences of it all, your holiness, and a little afraid. The Lord, you chose us. You made us family before we could ever chose you. Even after we rejected you, you chose us. And you have promised us that all All that you desire for us is to respond in faith to you. To follow you. To be your children. So Lord, we ask for your help. May you send your Holy Spirit. May you teach us to walk in your ways. Show us what it means to be your sons and your daughters. we don't know ourselves. Help us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.